Welcome to Talking Facts, what you need to know about family, food, finance, and fitness. Hosted by the University of Kentucky Family and Consumer Sciences Extension Program, our educators share research knowledge with individuals, families, and communities to improve quality of life. Hello, and welcome to Talking Facts. This is your host, Dr. Jennifer Hunter, Assistant Director for Family Consumer Sciences Extension at the University of Kentucky. Today, I'm pleased to have joining me Alex Ellswick, our Extension Specialist for Substance Use Prevention and Recovery. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. Today's topic is learning about and understanding more about syringe exchanges. And I must say that we just kind of laughed before we started the podcast because when you sat down and and shared the topic with me, I said, oh, Alex, is that is that controversial? And you said, yes, it's controversial, but there's a lot to just basic information or awareness out there for individuals. And so that's really what we're going to focus on today. Actually, I think what I said was, yes, it is controversial, but no, I won't get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been what you said. Okay. <laughs> yes. So syringe exchange programs is what they're commonly called. For the purposes of our podcast, since we're interested in using uh, destigmatized language and language that helps people, we'll talk about syringe access programs or syringe support programs. So they're talking about the same thing. But research shows that that's a more effective way to talk about them. So so what actually is, and coach me through this here again, mm-hmm. syringe access programs. programs. So a syringe access program is a place for people to access sterile syringes, specifically for people who are using drugs intravenously. So at first blush, it's pretty apparent why that would be controversial. Because I think the most common opposition to it is people will say, well, you're enabling drug use. Right. Right. So what's really interesting is when you look at data on places – in Kentucky is a good place to do this research because in Kentucky, we actually have more counties with syringe access programs than most other countries in the state, partly probably because we have 120 counties in the state, which makes it easy to do that. But So we can compare the counties that have syringe access programs to those who don't. And when we do that, we don't see any increase in drug use just because we have syringe access, right? So the research is saying people aren't using more drugs because there's a syringe right. access program, which sort of makes sense. Just because we have a syringe access program in, in Fayette County hasn't all of a sudden made you consider using drugs. Exactly. Things, I right? am not more likely to use right. drugs because that right. service is available. Right. And, and syringe access programs come from a philosophy of harm reduction, And in some ways, it's controversial in an addiction space. But what's kind of funny about it is harm reduction is something we do every day. So a good example of harm reduction would be using uh, birth control or condoms, right? So we talk about how abstinence-based sex education isn't as effective as the reality that in some cases kids are having sex. And so how can we accept that as a reality, but also mitigate the harm associated with that? We encourage safe sex practices. This is the same idea for addiction. So you said that those counties that do have syringe access programs, I should have... That was great. Yeah, I I should write it down, but I haven't. Um, But those counties that do have syringe access programs that there's research indicates that there is not an increase in drug usage. Does research indicate that there is a reduction in drug usage by having those programs? The research also does not indicate that. So research would suggest that the the rates of drug use stay stable. But what is important, what is most important about what syringe access programs do is they reduce the harm associated with using drugs intravenously. So we're talking about things like 
transmission of HIV and hepatitis C. We're talking about infectious disease like uh, like endocarditis, which is 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 basically a blockage in the heart valve, bacteria in a heart valve caused by using drugs intravenously. And the reason why this is so important to us in Kentucky is because Kentucky leads the nation in rates of hepatitis C. And uh, recently there was an HIV outbreak in Scott County, Indiana, largely because of of IV drug use. And it was really bad, really epidemic. And so- Which is not that far across the border. It's very close. So the CDC did a study to try to predict the, the, the counties in the country that are at the highest risk of having a similar outbreak. And a quarter of the counties in the country are in the state of Kentucky. Oh, that's a scary stat, Alex. It's a very scary stat. And so it speaks to the need for some of these harm reduction approaches because, of course, we want everybody to be in recovery, to be not using drugs, and to be happy. But in some cases, that's not always the reality. So we have to be practical and we have to say, how can we reduce harm right now? And syringe access programs are one of the most effective ways to do that. Can you explain a little bit about how a syringe access program works? Yeah, it's an important question. So in Fayette County, for instance, our syringe access program is run by the health department. And folks can come at designated hours and receive sterile syringes. In some places, there's a one-to-one ordinance, which basically means someone has to bring in a used syringe in order to receive a sterile syringe. And the idea behind that is it's going to help us keep dirty needles off the street. Right. The problem is best practice research says it's most effective when you don't make people's access to sterile syringes dependent on anything. Okay. So regardless of whether they bring a syringe or not, that they're able to get access. And and I would use the analogy. I know that this will make people bristle a little bit, and it's understandable. But I'd use the analogy of I have a family member who has diabetes. I certainly think that my family member has the right to have access to sterile syringes. It's, it's safer that way, right? So I think in a similar vein, we can make the argument that people need access to sterile syringes and it makes everyone safer in our state, right? I think that that's the the key takeaway is that it's reducing harm for all of us. All of us. Can you tell us a little bit about, because you, you said that there are several counties in the state of Kentucky mm-hmm. that do have syringe access programs, just about trends in terms of implementation and do we see more counties trying to develop syringe access programs? Is that normally ran through the health department? Just a little bit about how does this process get started in a local county? Yeah, typically it's run through the health department. That So we've mentioned a couple of times in different podcasts, this Senate Bill 192. And one of the things that bill did in Kentucky was leave it up. It created the possibility for syringe access programs and it left the decision up to county county level. So I, I can't remember currently how many syringe access programs there are in the state. There are quite a few. It's really surprising how many states have caught on. And the reason for that is if you talk to public health experts, people who are not necessarily concerned with drug use as much as they're concerned with the health of the public, they will tell you it is a no-brainer that we have to have syringe access programs to prevent the transmission of these diseases. And what's what's really been encouraging for me is some counties in eastern Kentucky that are at the highest risk of some of these different um, disease outbreaks are some of the counties that have started adopting syringe access. And I do I do think that that there are some very small rural counties. What about from a cost standpoint? How are these typically funded? If you could see, so like endocarditis, for instance, I mentioned, which is that infection in a heart valve from IV drug use, is one of the most expensive 
conditions to treat because people actually have to be hooked up to IV fluid and hospitalized for six weeks at a time. So it's incredibly, incredibly expensive. So if you have someone who's on Medicaid and they contract that that type of a disease, that type of a, a bacteria, and it has to be treated in a hospital setting, it costs taxpayers an immense amount of money. So the, preventing one case of endocarditis can save lots and lots of money. So from even just from a cost-benefit perspective, you, you really have a good return on your investment when you put these in, in our communities. All great information, Alex, and I think just definitely helps us as listeners, as consumers of information, understand more about what may be going on in our local communities and some of the services that could be available. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Talking Facts. We deliver programs focusing on nutrition and health, resource management, family development, and civic engagement. If you enjoyed today's podcast, have a question or a show topic idea, leave a like and comment on Facebook at UKFCSEXT. Visit us online at fcs.uky.edu to learn more about the University of Kentucky Family and Consumer Sciences Extension Program or contact your local extension agent for family and consumer sciences. We build strong families. It starts with us.